The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Is there a house in Michigan that is haunted because of the work of a serial killer? And then we take a trip on a UFO with a young boy, Roger S. He woke up one night to find aliens standing around his bed, and he stumbled into one of the greatest conspiracies today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are having an awesome day leading into an awesome weekend. I've actually had a really good week. I've actually had a really, really good week. If you listen to the first episode, I was a little distraught because of the whole job situation, but everything's been going great. It's been awesome. And I want to thank you guys for being such awesome listeners. Really, really appreciate it. You guys rock. And I also want to say this too. I want to give a shout out to three listeners in particular Wiggle Woggle Tutu, Herb Roasted, and H Sucker. All three of them left five star reviews on podcast apps. It could have been iTunes, could have been Podcast Addict, Spotify. I'm not for sure, but all three of them left. Not only did they leave five star reviews, but they left pretty detailed reasons why they thought the show deserved five stars. So I really, really appreciate that, guys. That helps get the word out, too. Any way that you can support the show is always appreciated. So, And I, I appreciate you guys so much. You guys rock. Let's go ahead and move on to our first story here. So let's go ahead and hop in the Jason Jalopy. We're going to drive to Detroit, Michigan. That was supposed to be the 8-mile song, but it wasn't. We're driving to Detroit, Michigan, right? And... We're going, specifically, we're going to the Brush Park Historic District. So load up. Let's go to stop at the gas station. We're going to get a bunch of Fago. Yeah. Glug, 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 glug. So we got our sugar rush in. Mm-mm-mm. So I don't think I've, I think I've had Fago once, one time. I imagine it tastes like Shasta. But um, Fago, famed drink of the Insane Clown Posse. Famed drink. I think you can only get it in Detroit, Michigan. I'm pretty sure it's just... Ford factory runoff water that they slap a label on, and depending on the color of the water, that's the quote-unquote flavor. But anyways, prove me wrong. Send me a bunch of free Fago. It's Detroit, Michigan. We're in Brush Park Historic District. We're specifically going to the Hot Mansion. Now, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Not the word mansion, but Hot. H-A-U. How often do I spell stuff out on this show? H-A-U-G-H-T. The hot, I don't want you to think it's Nelly's house. It's not the hot mansion. It's the hot mansion. Anyways, it's just this building on an empty lot. And we're just standing there. We're looking up at this. And I go, so, who wants to go in first? And you volunteer because you're the bravest of all of us. And you go in first. And it's been about 20 minutes. You haven't come back out yet. Yeah, we're just drinking Fago. We'll start painting our faces. We're juggalos now. And uh, you still haven't come out. So we're like, well, that's the end of that segment. <laughs> now let's go on to the next one. No, eventually, though, we are going to have to go in and look for you in particular. We walk into our shining flashlights around. 
spooky place. Now, this place became famous recently because of an urban explorer. And, and and he wrote a book, and it was a, like a photo essay type book. And in this and in this book, this house is featured. The book is called Thirteen: An American Horror Story, and it's all about like these ancient, decrepit buildings and their sinister past and experiences that this urban explorer. He goes by the name Seth Lawless. It's illegal a lot of times to do urban exploring, so the fact that he's using a, a pseudonym makes sense. But anyway, Seth Lawless. His photograph, guys, don't do the comments just yet, just yet. The, Seth Lawless is photographing these locations. He wrote this book, and he's kind of popularized this one. So we're walking around. So we've seen this place in Seth's Lawless beautiful photography. We're walking around, and it looks great. But the problem is, we find you. We find you cowering in the corner. Get up, man. Come on. He's like, no, no, no. I was uh, just pretending to cower. I was just pretending to wet my pants. I wanted, to, I wanted to, it was a social experiment. We're like, yeah, yeah, we still love you. So this place was a gentleman's club for, it was a whorehouse, basically, back in the 1920s, probably a better way to put it. It was, But it was, it was a little bit higher than a whorehouse because it was for the wealthy and the elite. So you want to just go down there and it wasn't just like Betty, who was the girl there. It was like Esmeralda, who probably, it's still Betty. She changed her name, put some more makeup. But that was this place. What happened was in 1941, this is according to the Courier Mail, it's a newspaper, obviously, 1941, the place was shut down because there was more, people kind of turned a blind eye to it, because one, it it serviced the elite, serviced in more than one way, the elite of the city, and two, people were kind of like, oh, you know, it's the roaring 20s, and then the roaring 30s, but by the 40s, people go, let's shut it down. All this new anti-prostitution laws got passed, Law enforcement really put an elbow on the place that got shut down. So it was just an empty building sitting there of a glorious past where you could go and pay money and have sex with beautiful women. Now it was just a place where bums showed up to have sex with each other. In the 1960s, though, a phone call is made to the police. Hey, guys, I was just down here being a bum, being a homeless person. And and there's something down here. It smells really, really bad. Apparently, Rick Sanchez was a homeless person in Detroit, Michigan. The cops go down there, and as they're getting close to the place, they can smell it. Uh-oh. So they walk in, they're walking around, get their flashlights ready. You smell that? Yeah, yeah, I smell I smelled it out there. I mean, why are you even asking me that, bro? Of course I smelt it. They go down, and they follow the smell, like straight up Fruit Loop in it, down to the basement, and there's just bodies everywhere like do quick quick cut flashes of all these individual bodies straight csi style and then we're gonna do a cut to police scene tape i wonder when police scene tape was invented i don't think they had it in 1941 oh wait when does this happen this happened in the 1960s so i don't think they had it in the 1960s because you would need i wonder how they used old-timey police tape the papyrus did they use that back in egyptian days they're like okay guys (laughs) recording off this area I guess originally you probably just used string, but I wonder if it said police on it. Anyways, they cordon off the area somehow. They just they just stand. They just have a cop standing every few inches, cordon off the area, bring in homicide investigators. Ton of bodies down there. Now to this day, we don't know exactly how many bodies were in this basement. It was enough to make the place stink from outside the building. But each of the bodies had what seemed to be a perfect circle carved in the torso. 
So some people have thought that this is some sort of cult. Maybe the elite came back to continue to use the building. Now that they couldn't, like, you know, bang people there, they're just going to use it for other elite activities. Human sacrifices. Some people believe it was a serial killer who that was his place to dump the bodies. And it wasn't until they just got... The, the homeless people just were living there and just like, ah, what are you going to do? Like, there's two or three bodies in the basement. But I've lived in a worse place. And again, it's Detroit, Michigan. So two or three bodies in your basement. You're like, yeah, it's normal. But but by the time the human bodies started to stack up and the homeless people... I mean, imagine waking up to that smell. So some people think it's a cult. Some people think it's a serial killer. Now, what's funny is there is an other urban explorer who goes by the name Nailhead, and he's actually nailed this one on the head. He's actually figured out this thing. Seth Lawless made it up. It never happened. Now, this, like I said, this was featured in his book, 13, an American Horror Story. And this house and 12 other locations were published all over the internet. Look at the spooky photos and read about these terrifying backstories of these locations. And I found out about this on an Italian website called illparanormale.com. And they said this is the true story about this mansion that has all these bodies in it that's haunted today. And here's a photograph of it. And I go, oh, that's interesting. And then I start researching it. And I'm finding these other things. 13 ghost locations that are super spooky. Courier Mail did actually run an article on it. Headline, 13 real-life haunted houses and the horror stories that go with them. Nailhead, this other urban explorer, followed this story up. Whole story's made up. Seth Lawless is an urban explorer. He exists. He does take these photographs, but he made up the backstory to sell the book. Nailhead was just using the photograph. And having a rough idea, Detroit, Michigan, seeing where the photograph was at, seeing where these photographs were at, was able to locate the building in real life. It was a border house. And, and this nailhead goes through all of these public documents. He's like, I'm really going to disprove this one. This is absolutely ridiculous because I know for a fact that he's making this stuff up. He begins going through public records and he goes, listen, I'll be honest with you guys. It was a border house. People died there, but... People tend to die at home. And he begins listing all of the elderly people who've died there. There wasn't, they weren't rotting so bad that the hobos were leaving. There were no hobos. It did become a derelict building, but as of 2016, they're rebuilding it. The people who bought the property are like, guys, no, it's not haunted. That story's totally made up. Seth Lawless, early on before this gets out that he's caught doing this, has this quote. He calls his work creative nonfiction. So he's saying it's true, but it's creative. Here's a quote from him. It's taking real-life stories and making them appear to be fiction. The goal is to make the reader become so enthralled by the details and the fantasy that they forget the story is real, unquote. Now, Huffington Post did a, here's 13 spooky things, and think about it, it's a puff piece. It really is, here's 13 photographs. They are beautiful photographs, but here's 13 photographs. That'll make your skin crawl. Ooh, probably came out around Halloween. Maybe sometime it came around around the release of his book, but if he was smart, he would release the book around Halloween. A puff piece article. 18 things you can do with Cheez-Its. Stuff like that. They issued a retraction on this puff piece. 
People aren't going to write in and say, you can't do those 18 things with the cheese. It's, they just let the article stand. It's garbage article for clicks to get money, whatever. They issued a retraction. They said, listen, a lot of our readers have reached out to us to let us know that this is fake. However, we're going to leave the article up for historical purposes. And I think, one, they're getting, they did put the retraction at the very top of the articles. Like, bam. As art, the photos are beautiful. Now, the backstory is totally, again, totally made up. We know for a fact that the hot mansion one is fake. But we do know that the hot mansion is fake. That story is totally made up. And it's most likely the other ones are as well. Especially since Huffington Post was like, hey, so many of our readers have written in. And that was the end of that. So, it's really disingenuous because part of being in the paranormal community is trust, right? Like, that's part of it, is that when we read these sources, we trust that they're accurate, but this guy is just manufacturing this stuff wholesale. And it really goes to show that a lot of it probably is as well. This guy just happened to get caught. So, Nailhead, thanks for exposing that. I mean, and as an urban explorer and as a photographer, Seth Lawless, is, I'm sure he's pretty good at what he does, but as a author of creative nonfiction, he's just muddying the waters for everyone else. And And let's go ahead and move on. Let's use it as a transition for our next story. Because our next story, while not knowably false, it's recently come to light. This I could The only reference I can find to this was back from um, November of 2019. So super recent story. It's fascinating, but it'll be interesting to find out if, if we get any additional information regarding this. But let's go ahead. We're hop back in the Jason Jalopy. We've gotten you a brand new pair of clothes. You're like, thanks, Jason. I bought you some straight up Dickies pants. We're wiping off our Juggalo face paint, buying one more two liter of Fago for each of us. I get the orange flavor. And we're driving off, bumping some ICP to Orlando, Florida. Now, most of this information I'm getting is from, because I want to give credit to this guy who wrote this awesome article. His name is Marcus Louth. Loth? I just really can't pronounce names. Marcus Louth, he writes for UFOinsight.com. I've got a ton of stuff from him. They seem to be a pretty reputable website. But again, this story, because we're only just hearing about it, and it took place so long ago, it does raise a little red flags. But I find it very, very fascinating. So we're going to take off our skeptic hat for a bit. We're going to take our baseball cap and turn it backwards even though we've left detroit we still got detroit inside our hearts and we get to orlando florida it's april 29th 1989 it's 11 30 p.m there's a little boy little little 10 year old boy laying in bed he goes by the name roger s that's an interesting pseudonym to use because roger s is actually hard to find on the internet Because it keeps wanting to pull up Rogers, Rogers, Rogers. So a a detail to make it more difficult to verify the story or just a a pseudonym that accidentally makes it difficult to track stuff down. Who knows? But Roger S. 10 years old, little boy. He's sleeping. (gasps) Wakes up in the dark of his room. But he's not alone. Not alone. Standing around him in the darkness, he sees four aliens. And by all description, they fit the classical gray pattern. Little arms, tiny little bodies, short, about four, four and a half feet. But he describes her head as being heart-shaped. So it's not the typical giant oval, but basically like a heart. 
So right there, that's kind of an interesting detail, something that kind of sets it apart from other alien stories. But everything else, no nose, slit mouth, big eyes, but the head had a lump and then a little valley and then another lump. It wasn't the straight old big old egg head of the gray aliens. They're standing around him. And their mouths, actually, this was another detail. They were slits, but they were gold mouths. So the pale skin, gold mouths. So were they doing makeup before they were like, oh, oh, we got to get ready for this abduction. We're going to look so beautiful. Sally, don't. Uh, beauty school dropouts playing over there. I wonder if they listen to music in UFOs, dude. Because think about it, like, when you're in a battleship, I've never been on a battleship at sea. But, you know, I've seen, like, Under Siege, that you know, that documentary that came out a long time ago. As you're walking along in a battleship, right, I'm sure, like, you walk by the cook, and he's, like, bumping some Guns and Roses, right? Please correct me if I'm wrong. I can't have never been on a battleship. But you think, like, if for an interstellar journey, or if you're just time traveling or whatever, coming from other dimensions, however UFOs get here, you think they listen to music? I actually have a theory that aliens don't have music. They don't listen to me. They don't know what music is. I think music may be a completely human thing. If you look at all the alien encounters ever, ever, there's very rarely is there any mention of art or drawing or anything like that or music. So that's kind of creepy to think you can have an entire race, no music, none. Because music's such a part of the human experience. Just to the point where we've created entire industries that you can press a button and listen to any music you want at any time. It's like water for humans. It's available everywhere. So imagine a species that that's not important to is very weird. But anyway, so while we're considering those implications, this 10-year-old boy is getting abducted. We're standing in the bedroom. I'm like, but no, I mean, have you ever heard of an alien hitting the bongos? The kid's like, help me, help me. They, these aliens, they throw him on a hover bed. And it starts to kind of hover out of his house. Now, I don't know how the layout of his house is. I don't know if it's like hovering down the stairs and then going through the foyer. But eventually, he's in this hover bed. And he can't move. Because what's the point of having a hover bed if you just kind of get up and hop off of it? And the hover bed's leaving his house and he sees a saucer in his backyard. He blacks out. He's inside the ship now and these aliens are standing around him. And he can talk to him telepathically. The aliens are doing that, and he's able to talk back back and forth. And one of the aliens asks, what are you? He thinks about it for a second, and he goes, a uh, human boy. Pretty basic, pretty basic way you would explain it. You wouldn't say that to another human, but when you're talking to an alien, that would be how you would describe yourself. Aliens are bringing him on this craft, and then he's, he's on this hoverbed, and he sees a row of panels. All these different visual images that are going to be feeding him information here. And on one of them, he sees his friend, Nancy. Assumedly, she's asleep as well at her house. But in one of these panels, he sees her in the hospital. And so he he asks, "Where where's my friend Nancy? Why is she in the hospital? And the aliens are just kind of going about their business, but they're communicating with him. And they go, uh, she's on another ship. She's on another ship right now. And then we have this interesting quote. She will not be reborn because she has been born too many times. Long alien fingers just hitting buttons on a control panel. Ten-year-old boy's just sitting there in this UFO trying to digest everything. One, he's been abducted by aliens. That's kind of bizarre. Two, his friend who should be sleeping in her house is in a hospital somewhere. And now he's been hit with this idea that not only is there reincarnation, but there's a limit to it. And aliens have some hand or knowledge in reincarnation. 
the alien ship is flying around in the cosmos at this point. And the aliens take him on a tour of the ship. He's walking through, and he's kind of doing this whole, like, walking through, looking in doors and stuff like that. He walks past the room. These aliens are leading him past the room. He sees what he describes as a 30-year-old man just kind of sitting on a table looking at Roger. And aliens kind of looking, doing steady in the 30-year-old man. He moves to the next room. He goes to this one room. The aliens take off his pajamas and they give him a red suit that Roger puts on. And he says, when I put it on, it clung to his skin. So it didn't matter what size he wore. It was the perfect size for him. And he said it was red and it had what appeared to be hieroglyphics. Now he's walking around in his cool jumpsuit. That's an interesting detail, too, because a lot of times when aliens wear clothes, they always talk about how form-fitting it is. Very rarely have we come across alien stories where they're wearing baggy clothes. He gets taken to another room. There's another panel there, and he's showing this specifically. On this panel is him sleeping in bed. What? Just, like, pre-recorded? Like, did you guys plan this? What is going on? And he's watching himself sleep in bed, and he sees his dad actually open the bedroom door and go in and kind of look, check on him, and then go back to sleep. And that's when it dawns on Roger. This is happening now. He's watching video footage of right now. So now he's really, he's like, well, where am I? Like, am I having an out-of-body experience? Which is something that a child wouldn't be able to process, really. I don't think anyone would be able to process any of this information, but am I still there and this is, I'm having an out-of-body experience? Is that a clone? Is that a doppelganger? Little Roger sitting in bed and what if the dad walked up and touched it and it, that would actually be creepy. The dad walks up and he like touches it, assuming it's a doppelganger and it's not alive and the dad's like, oh no, my son's passed away. And then the aliens look at him and (laughs) look at Roger and be like, well, That was unfortunate. We can't take you back home now because how would we explain you coming back to life? I don't know. Or maybe, who knows what it was? Who knows what it was? But yeah, that if if their plan was discovered halfway through, it's not like the aliens could show up with the real Roger and say, oh, here you go. Like, it would be too late. I don't know. That was kind of a, that was kind of a grim thought experiment. He also, then they show him on this panel, video of himself skiing down a mountain in the future. He sees himself as an... This is a trippy one. And again, we really have to wonder, like, what is behind the story? But he sees himself as an older man, not super old, but, you know, older than 10, skiing down a mountain. He's taken into another room, and there are heart-shaped head aliens with gold lips. But these ones are orange. They have an orangish tint. Drinking way too much of that Fago, I bet. And he is told that these ones are the female of the species. Little orangies. Little little females. And they begin to ask him questions about how humans procreate. And he's like, dude, don't ask me. I'm 10 years old. I have no idea. You abducted the wrong person. I, I couldn't even begin. What, I don't even know what procreate is. And he's like, that's fair enough. He then goes into a room, which seems to be kind of common in some of these stories. It's a room full of animals. A zoo, basically. And we always hear the same description. There's a mixture of real-life animals. So bears, badgers, boars, butterflies, baboons, banana slugs. 
and so forth. But also animals that he couldn't identify. Does that mean that the animals are alien? Does that mean the animals are from Earth that he's just not familiar with? We don't know. I guess the implication is they're alien. And again, since we're already on... An, if somebody in, on Earth said, I saw an animal the other day, I've never seen it before, I think it's an alien animal, you would be like, no, dude, you're an idiot, it's a real animal, let's go look at it. But if you're already on a UFO, and you, you're, you're going to expect to see animals you've never seen before. But I've come across this a lot recently. People talking about these space zoos aboard UFOs, which would make sense because they're abducting people anyways. And again, that goes to show why are cows getting... I believe cows are getting mutilated, but I don't think they're UFOs. If anything, it's a human cult, some weird cult thing. But it doesn't make sense for a UFO to abduct a cow, suck all their blood up, and then throw them back onto the Earth. Why not just incinerate them? They can cut the cosmos in half with their vehicles. They don't have a heat ray. They don't have a crematory. But and then they also are keeping all these other animals. It doesn't make sense. Cattle mutilations on a UFO perspective doesn't make sense. But then we come to the most interesting room, which honestly for this story is a bit of a high bar. Because we got space zoos, we got seen into the future, we got the idea of out-of-body experience versus uh, photocopies of humans being left so abductions could go on undetected. Did the father, that's kind of an interesting thing too, I'm not a parent myself, but did the father wake up in the middle of the night because he just felt something was off? Does he always check on his son? Or did something prompt him that night to kind of wake up and feel a little uneasy, uh, something in the pit of his stomach that made him go in and check on his son and go, oh, everything's okay, when his son was really possibly millions of miles away. So it's a pretty weird story. We got reincarnation, we got hieroglyphics, spacesuits. But for the creme de la creme, for the coup de gras, whatever French term you want, the aliens really saved the best for last. So we got all this stuff going on. The aliens take him to one final room, and he sees a bunch of other humans in there. So we've already seen the one 30-year-old man sitting on the table, but now we have a bunch of humans sitting in this room. And there's a bunch of, like, hover beds as well. But the humans aren't on the hover beds. The humans are wearing what Roger could identify as NASA uniforms. And on the hoverbeds are unconscious aliens. And the humans are running experiments on them and taking notes. Roger is then dropped off at home, now being shown the greatest conspiracy possible involving UFOs. He's dropped off at home. We specifically get this quote from UFO Insight. The next thing he knew, he was alone in his room. Which, in normal terms, means he woke up. There, Like I said, the earliest we found the story was November 2019. And I keep seeing the same phrase. It says, um, Roger S. This, this is the story of Roger S. As told by James Greenan. But I can't find a James Greenan in UFOlogy. I can't find... I found a bunch of James Greenans, but I couldn't find a particular James Greenan who's attached to this story in any sort of way. So who knows why this story is just getting exposed now, who James Greenan is. Roger S. wants to keep his identity secret. I understand. I mean, it does make the story harder to verify, but I do understand that. So there's a little bit of suspicions. It there could be a ton of reasons why this is like this. and and But I think we'll assume for the sake of the story that it's true. The narrative's true. Because I'd rather 
address some of the stuff there. The idea of the aliens having access to the future, the idea that the aliens have access to the knowledge of life and death, that makes them feel more supernatural than alien. But the idea that you have these aliens being tied to these abilities of seeing into the future, past lives, makes you wonder if there's not a more supernatural element than we previously thought. To me, though, the more interesting thing is the humans, not only are humans working with aliens, but that humans are experimenting on aliens on an alien starship with the aliens' knowledge. I guess there's always been the suggestion that humans have worked on dead aliens or captured aliens. And this has always been kind of the X-Files type theory that we found out aliens existed after the crash of Roswell. The government or members of the shadow government or deep state is as it's known today made alliances with the greys or the reptilians or both to have an exchange. You give us technology to help win the Cold War or to take over the world, and we will give you humans that you can abduct. We will not investigate it at all. It's a quid pro quo situation. We want technology. You want humans to experiment on. That's always been kind of the main... I don't know if that's as popular as it used to be, but in the 80s and 90s, when I was really into researching UFO abductions and stuff like that, that was always kind of the underlying conspiracy. The U.S. government and governments around the world allow people to get abducted in exchange for technology. I think it's interesting to think that there may be another layer on that, that humans are not just finding dead alien bodies where they can and, and working on them, but the aliens themselves may be kidnapping their own alien people or to be experimented on by humans. Does that make sense? Like, is it possible that there's an alien planet where there was some young, heart-shaped, alien-headed kid playing Blockark, and then he does his homework, does his space work, lives his life, says goodbye to his friend Blockark, and eats his noodles, because they have that everywhere, and then goes to bed, and then he wakes up, and there's four six-foot-tall humans standing around his bed, and uniforms with a weird emblem on it and the next thing he knows he's being pulled around this ship he sees some of his fellow aliens there but he's mostly being worked on by these tall pale creatures with small heads and beady little eyes i find that idea fascinating that they may not just be abducting us we may be abducting them. And both are working together for whatever means, whatever the end result is, both are working together. And we're just the experiments. We're all just the pawns in this game of the powerful, of the alien planet and the powerful of Earth. And if that's true, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of an interesting thing because... Maybe it's not us versus the elite and their alien allies. Maybe it's us and a planet full of alienesses, workers and dreamers and lovers, just of a different species from a different planet that are also being preyed upon by their corrupt government who made a deal with another corrupt government thousands of light years away. Because if that's the case, then we have allies. 
We have friends. Someday will we not be fighting an alien race, but be allied with an alien race to overthrow both of our systems of tyranny. Who knows? But it's an interesting spin on the idea of the alien brotherhood. We're not going to join some galactic federation and become just a cog in the machine. We're going to team up with other oppressed peoples across the galaxy and overthrow those governments that thought we were just there as specimens. An interesting theory that may simply be based on the dream of a 10-year-old boy. But it could be the start of a beautiful friendship. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm so glad you listened to it today. Have a great weekend, guys. 